Chapter 11, Part 2 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bracci. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wake. Section 20. While Mr. Lincoln was no financier and had no propensity to acquire property, no avarice of the get, yet he had the capacity of retention or the avarice of the keep. He never speculated in lands or anything else. In the days of land offices and choice lots in a growing town, he had many opportunities to make safe ventures, promising good returns, but he never availed himself of them. His brother lawyers were making good investments and lucky turns. Some of them, Davis, for example, were rapidly becoming wealthy, but Lincoln cared nothing for speculation. In fact, there was no venturesome spirit in him. His habits were very simple. He was not fastidious as to food or dress. His hat was brown, faded, and the nap usually worn or rubbed off. He wore a short cloak and sometimes a shawl. His coat and vest hung loosely on his gaunt frame, and his trousers were invariably too short. On the circuit he carried in one hand a faded green umbrella, with A. Lincoln in large white cotton or muslin letters sewed on the inside. The knob was gone from the handle and when closed a piece of cord was usually tied around it in the middle to keep it from flying open. In the other hand, he carried a literal carpet bag, in which were stored the few papers to be used in court, and underclothing enough to last till his return to Springfield. He slept in a long, coarse, yellow flannel shirt, which reached halfway between his knees and ankles. It probably was not made to fit his bony figure as completely as Beau Brummel's shirt, and hence we can somewhat appreciate the sensation of a young lawyer who, on seeing him thus arrayed for the first time, observed afterwards that he was the ungodliest figure I ever saw. He never complained of the food, bed, or lodging. If every other fellow grumbled at the bill of fare which greeted us at many of the dingy taverns, says David Davis, Lincoln said nothing. He was once presiding as judge in the absence of Davis, and the case before him was an action brought by a merchant against the father of a minor son, for a suit of clothes sold to the son without parental authority. The real question was whether the clothes were necessary and suited to the condition of the son's life. The father was a wealthy farmer. The bill for the clothing was $28. I happened in court just as Lincoln was rendering his decision. He ruled against the plea of necessity. I have rarely in my life, said he, worn a suit of clothes costing $28. Several of us lawyers, remarked one of his colleagues, in the eastern end of the circuit annoyed Lincoln once while he was holding court for Davis, by attempting to defend against a note to which there were many makers. We had no legal, but a good moral defense, but what we wanted most of all was to stave it off till the next term of court by one expedient or the other. We bothered the court about it till late on Saturday, the day of adjournment. He adjourned for supper with nothing left but this case to dispose of. After supper he heard our twaddle for nearly an hour, and then made this odd entry. L. D. Chadden versus J. D. Beasley et al. April Term, 1856, Champaign County Court. Plea in abatement. By B. Z. Green, a defendant not served. Filed Saturday at 11 o'clock a.m., April 24, 1856. Stricken from the files by order of court. Demur to declaration, if there ever was one, overruled. Defendants who are served now at 8 o'clock p.m. of the last day of the term ask to plead the merits which is denied by the court, on the ground that the offer comes too late, and therefore, as by nil deset, judgment is rendered for the plaintiff. Clerk assessed damages. A. Lincoln, Judge Pro Tem. 
The lawyer who reads this singular entry will appreciate its oddity if no one else does. After making it, one of the lawyers, on recovering his astonishment, ventured to inquire, Well, Lincoln, how can we get this case up again? Lincoln eyed him quizzically for a moment and then answered, You have all been so mighty smart about this case, you can find out how to take it up again yourselves. The same gentleman who furnishes this last incident, and who was afterward a trusted friend of Mr. Lincoln, Henry C. Whitney, has described most happily the delights of a life on the circuit. A bit of it referring to Lincoln, I apprehend, cannot be deemed out of place here. In October 1854, Abraham Lincoln, he relates, drove into our town, Urbana, to attend court. He had the appearance of a rough, intelligent farmer, and his rude homemade buggy and raw-boned horse enforced this belief. I had met him for the first time in June of the same year. David Davis and Leonard Sweat had just preceded him. The next morning he started north on the Illinois Central Railroad, and as he went in an old omnibus he played on a boy's harp all the way to the depot. I used to attend the Danville Court, and while there usually roomed with Lincoln and Davis. We stopped at McCormick's Hotel, an old-fashioned frame country tavern. Jurors, counsel, prisoners, everybody ate at a long table. The Judge Lincoln and I had the ladies' parlor fitted up with two beds. Lincoln, Sweat, McWilliams of Bloomington, Voorhees of Covington, Indiana, O.L. Davis, Drake, Ward Lehman, Lawrence, Beckwith, and O.F. Harmon of Danville, Whiteman of Iroquois County, and Chandler of Williamsport, Indiana, constituted the bar. Lincoln, Davis, Sweat, I, and others who came from the western part of the state would drive from Urbana. The distance was 36 miles. We sang and exchanged stories all the way. We had no hesitation in stopping at a farmhouse and ordering them to kill and cook a chicken for dinner. By dark we reached Danville. Layman would have whiskey in his office for the drinking ones, and those who indulged in petty gambling would get by themselves and play till late in the night. Lincoln, Davis, and a few local wits would spend the evening in Davis's room, talking politics, wisdom, and fun. Lincoln and Sweat were the great lawyers, and Lincoln always wanted Sweat in jury cases. We who stopped at the hotel would all breakfast together and frequently go out into the woods and hold court. We were of more consequence than a court and bar is now. The feelings were those of great fraternity in the bar, and if we desired to restrict our circle, it was no trouble for Davis to freeze out any disagreeable persons. Lincoln was fond of going all by himself to any little show or concert. I have known him to slip away and spend the entire evening at a little magic lantern show intended for children, a traveling concert company calling themselves the Newhall family, were sure of drawing Lincoln. One of their number, Mrs. Hillis, a good singer, he used to tell us, was the only woman who ever seemed to exhibit any liking for him. I attended a Negro minstrel show in Chicago where we heard Dixie sung. It was entirely new and pleased him greatly. In court he was irrepressible and apparently inexhaustible in his fund of stories. Where in the world a man who had traveled so little and struggled amid the restrictions of such limited surroundings could gather up such apt and unique yarns, we never could guess. Davis appreciated Lincoln's talent in this direction, and was always ready to stop business to hear one of his stories. Lincoln was very bashful when in the presence of ladies. I remember once we were invited to take tea at a friend's house, and while in the parlor I was called to the front gate to see a client. When I returned, Lincoln, who had undertaken to entertain the ladies, was twisting and squirming in his chair, and as bashful as a schoolboy. Everywhere, though, we met a hard crowd at every court, and though things were free and easy, we were treated with great respect. 
Probably the most important lawsuit Lincoln and I conducted was one in which we defended the Illinois Central Railroad in an action brought by McLean County, Illinois in August 1853 to recover taxes alleged to be due the county from the road. The legislature had granted the road immunity from taxation, and this was a case intended to test the constitutionality of the law. The road sent a retainer fee of $250. In the lower court, the case was decided in favor of the railroad. An appeal to the Supreme Court followed, and there it was argued twice, and finally decided in our favor. This last decision was rendered sometime in 1855. Mr. Lincoln soon went to Chicago and presented our bill for legal services. We only asked for $2,000 more. The official to whom he was referred, supposed to have been the superintendent, George B. McClellan, who afterwards became the eminent general, looking at the bill, expressed great surprise. Why, sir, he exclaimed, this is as much as Daniel Webster himself would have charged. We cannot allow such a claim. Stung by the rebuff, Lincoln withdrew the bill and started for home. On the way, he stopped at Bloomington. There he met Grant Goodrich, Archibald Williams, Norman B. Judd, O. H. Browning, and other attorneys, who, on learning of his modest charge for such valuable services rendered the railroad, induced him to increase the demand to $5,000 and to bring suit for that sum. This was done at once. On the trial, six lawyers certified the bill was reasonable, and judgment for that sum went by default. The judgment was promptly paid. Lincoln gave me my half, and much as we deprecated the avarice of great corporations, we both thanked the Lord for letting the Illinois Central Railroad fall into our hands. In the summer of 1857, Lincoln was employed by one Manny of Chicago to defend him in an action brought by McCormick, who was the inventor of the reaping machine, for infringement of patent. Lincoln had been recommended to Manny by E.B. Washburn, then a member of Congress, from Northern Illinois. The case was to be tried before Judge McLean at Cincinnati in the Circuit Court of the United States. The counsel for McCormick was Reverdy Johnson. Edwin M. Stanton and George Harding of Philadelphia were associated on the other side with Lincoln. The latter came to Cincinnati a few days before the argument took place and stopped at the house of a friend. The case was one of great importance pecuniarily relates a lawyer in Cincinnati who was a member of the bar at the time, and in the law questions involved. Reverdy Johnson represented the plaintiff. Mr. Lincoln had prepared himself with the greatest care. His ambition was up to speak in the case and to measure swords with the renowned lawyer from Baltimore. It was understood between his client and himself before his coming that Mr. Harding of Philadelphia was to be associated with him in the case and was to make the mechanical argument. After reaching Cincinnati, Mr. Lincoln was a little surprised and annoyed to learn that his client had also associated him with Mr. Edwin M. Stanton of Pittsburgh and a lawyer of our own bar, the reason assigned being that the importance of the case required a man of the experience and power of Mr. Stanton to meet Mr. Johnson. The Cincinnati lawyer was appointed for his local influence. These reasons did not remove the slight conveyed in the employment without consultation with him of this additional counsel. He keenly felt it, but acquiesced. The trial of the case came on. The counsel for defense met each morning for consultation. On one of these occasions, one of the counsel moved that only two of them should speak in the case. This matter was also acquiesced in. It had always been understood that Mr. Harding was to speak to explain the mechanism of the reapers, so this motion excluded either Mr. Lincoln or Mr. Stanton, which... By the custom of the bar, as between counsel of equal standing and in the absence of any action of the client, the original counsel speaks. By this rule, Mr. Lincoln had precedence. Mr. Stanton suggested to Mr. Lincoln to make the speech. Mr. Lincoln answered, No, you speak. Mr. Stanton replied, I will, and taking up his hat said he would go and make preparation. Mr. Lincoln acquiesced in this, but was greatly grieved and mortified. 
He took but little more interest in the case, though remaining until the conclusion of the trial. He seemed to be greatly depressed, and gave evidence of that tendency to melancholy which so marked his character. His parting on leaving the city cannot be forgotten. Cordially shaking the hand of his hostess, he said, You have made my stay here most agreeable, and I am a thousand times obliged to you. But in reply to your request for me to come again, I must say to you I never expect to be in Cincinnati again. I have nothing against the city, but things have so happened here as to make it undesirable for me ever to return. Lincoln felt that Stanton had not only been very discourteous to him, but had purposely ignored him in the case, and that he had received rather rude, if not unkind, treatment from all hands. Stanton, in his brusque and abrupt way, it is said, described him as a long, lank creature from Illinois, wearing a dirty linen duster for a coat, on the back of which the perspiration had splotched wide stains that resembled a map of the continent. Mr. Lincoln, adds Mr. Dixon, remained in Cincinnati about a week, moving freely around, yet not twenty men knew him personally, or knew he was here. Not a hundred would have known who he was had his name been given to them. He came with the fond hope of making fame in a forensic contest with Reverdy Johnson. He was pushed aside, humiliated, and mortified. He attached to the innocent city the displeasure that filled his bosom, and shook its dust from his feet. On his return to Springfield he was somewhat reticent regarding the trial and, contrary to his custom, communicated to his associates at the bar but few of its incidents. He told me that he had been roughly handled by that man Stanton, that he overheard the latter from an adjoining room while the door was slightly ajar, referring to Lincoln inquire of another, where did that long-armed creature come from, and what can he expect to do in this case? During the trial Lincoln formed a poor opinion of Judge McLean. He characterized him as an old granny with considerable vigor of mind, but no perception at all. If you were to point your finger at him, he put it, and a darning needle at the same time, he never would know which was the sharpest. As Lincoln grew into public favor and achieved such marked success in the profession, half the bar of Springfield began to be envious of his growing popularity. I believe there is less jealousy and bitter feeling among lawyers than professional men of any other class, but it should be borne in mind that in that early day a portion of the bar in every county seat, if not a majority of the lawyers everywhere, were politicians. Stewart frequently differed from Lincoln on political questions and was full of envy. Likewise, those who coincided with Lincoln in his political views were disturbed in the same way. Even Logan was not wholly free from the degrading passion. But in this respect, Lincoln suffered no more than other great characters who preceded him in the world's history. That which Lincoln's adversaries in a lawsuit feared most of all was his apparent disregard of custom or professional propriety in managing a case before a jury. He brushed aside all rules and very often reported to some strange and strategic performance which invariably broke his opponent down or exercised some peculiar influence over the jury. Hence the other side in a case were in constant fear of one of his dramatic strokes or trembled lest he should ring in some ingeniously planned interruption not on the program. In a case where Judge Logan, always earnest and grave, opposed him, Lincoln created no little merriment by his reference to Logan's style of dress. He carried the surprise in store for the latter, till he reached his turn before the jury. Addressing them, he said, Gentlemen, you must be careful and not permit yourselves to be overcome by the eloquence of counsel for the defense. Judge Logan, I know, is an effective lawyer. I have met him too often to doubt that, but shrewd and careful though he may be, still he is sometimes wrong. Since this trial has begun, I have discovered that, with all his caution and fastidiousness, he hasn't knowledge enough to put his shirt on right. Logan turned red as crimson, but sure enough, Lincoln was correct, for the former had donned a new shirt, and by mistake had drawn it over his head with the pleated bosom behind. 
the general laugh which followed destroyed the effect of logan's eloquence over the jury the very point at which lincoln aimed the trial of william armstrong for the murder of james p metzger in may eighteen fifty eight at beardstown illinois in which lincoln secured the acquittal of the defendant was one of the gratifying triumphs in his career as a lawyer lincoln's defense wherein he floored the principal prosecuting witness who had testified positively to seeing the fatal blow struck in the moonlight by showing from an almanac that the moon had set was not more convincing than his eloquent and irresistible appeal in his client's favor the latter's mother old hannah armstrong the friend of his youth had solicited him to defend her son he told the jury relates the prosecuting attorney of his once being a poor friendless boy that armstrong's parents took him into their house fed and clothed him and gave him a home there were tears in his eyes as he spoke the sight of his tall quivering frame and the particulars of the story he so pathetically told moved the jury to tears also and they forgot the guilt of the defendant in their admiration of his advocate it was the most touching scene i ever witnessed before passing it may be well to listen to the humble tribute of old hannah armstrong the defendant's mother lincoln had said to me hannah your son will be cleared before sundown i left the courtroom and they came and told me that my son was cleared and a free man i went up to the courthouse the jury shook hands with me so did the judge and lincoln tears streamed down lincoln's eyes after the trial i asked him what his fee would be told him i was poor why hannah he said i shan't charge you a cent and anything else i can do for you will do it willingly and without charge he afterwards wrote to me about a piece of land which certain men were trying to get from me and said hannah they can't get your land let them try it in the circuit court and then you appeal it bring it to the supreme court and i and herndon will attend to it for nothing the last suit of any importance in which lincoln was personally engaged was known as the johnson sandbar case it involved the title to certain lands the accretion on the shores of lake michigan in or near chicago it was tried in the united states circuit court at chicago in april and may eighteen sixty during the trial the court judge drummond and all the counsel on both sides dined at the residence of isaac n arnold afterwards a member of congress douglas and lincoln relates mr arnold were at the time both candidates for the nomination for president there were active and ardent political friends of each at the table and when the sentiment was proposed may illinois furnish the next president it was drank with enthusiasm by the friends of both lincoln and douglas i could fill this volume with reminiscences of lincoln's career as a lawyer but lest the reader should tire of what must savor in many cases of monotony it is best to move on i have made this portion of the book rather full but as lincoln's individuality and peculiarities were more marked in the law office and courtroom than anywhere else it will play its part in making up the picture of the man enough has been told to show how in the face of adverse fortune and the lack of early training and by force of his indomitable will and self-confidence he gained such ascendancy among the lawyers of illinois the reader is enabled thereby to understand the philosophy of his growth but now another field is preparing to claim him there will soon be great need for his clear reason masterly mind and heroic devotion to principle the distant mutterings of an approaching contest are driving scattered factions into a union of sentiment and action as the phalanxes of warriors are preparing for action amid the rattle of forensic musketry lincoln their courageous leader equipped for battle springs into view end of section twenty recording by don bracci chicago illinois www.voicedon.com